Well, good morning. This morning we want to continue our study of the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. And I've titled this uh, teaching, Paul Meets with the Ephesian Elders. Now, the book of Acts is a transition book. We're transitioning from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. So Acts is focused on helping us understand the kingdom of God based on the revelation that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. That's the seminal idea that drives now all the teaching of the New Testament. Properly understood, the Old Covenant leads to the conviction of mankind's total depravity before God. And I say properly understood because I find many people don't really get that. This means that human beings are born in sin and are impotent to self-save or self-remedy their condition. The New Covenant is God's gracious response to the hopeless state of mankind. God has granted divine potency to enable mankind to be saved through the atoning, vicarious atoning sacrifice of Christ. In the Old Testament, the revelation of the new covenant is concealed. It's there, but it's not easily understood. And the key to unlock it was, as I mentioned, Acts 2.36. And the key concept is that we can know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom the Jews crucified to be Lord and Christ. So from this point, the implications of the truth about Jesus begin to unfold through the events recorded in the first 19 chapters of Acts. By chapter 20, Paul was in the final days of his third apostolic journey. He's on his way to Jerusalem and he decides to stop at Miletus and summon the elders of the local church in Ephesus to deliver a final message. The only message recorded by Luke specifically given to the leaders of a local ecclesia. All the other messages were given to mixed groups, but this is specifically to the leaders, the elders of a local church. Ephesus was the leading city of Asia, and at the beginning of his second apostolic journey, Paul tried to go into Asia, but he was not allowed. The scripture says the Holy Spirit stopped him. We don't know how, but we just attribute it's the, the barrier, whatever that barrier was, to the Holy Spirit saying no. Now, it's interesting, at the end of the second journey, he was allowed to go to Ephesus for just a brief time. But it's on his third apostolic journey that he returned to Ephesus, and he stayed there for over three years. During this time, he followed his custom and went to the synagogue to share the good news about that Jesus is Lord in Christ, and he shared it with those who were biblically literate and committed to living by the word, as the Jewish people claimed to be. So he had a little fruit, but after three months, he began to get a lot of resistance. So Paul withdrew. He stopped doing that and instead started a new project, a daily discipleship training program that lasted for two years. Now, we don't know how many men were in it. Uh, from the context, it looks like there might have been, say, 12 or so. There might have been more than that. But every day they met for two years. At the end of that time, something amazing happened. The evangelistic work that Paul was not able to do through the synagogue, as he tried to do so faithfully in other places, actually happened. It happened by virtue of discipleship. The fruit of his discipleship work was the evangelism of all of Asia. So let me be clear. The discipleship work was a few people in Ephesus only, but the end result was the discipleship 
or the evangelism of all of Asia. Now, that's just an amazing thing. We look at that and say, wow, how did that happen? Well, it's, it's kind of a picture of what happened in Acts 6. In Acts 6, you have the ecclesia with getting out of order because the food distribution was not being handled correctly. So the apostles identified well, how to solve the problem was to use the C4 principle, identify the people called to food distribution, give them that work to do, and as they did it, they brought order out of chaos, and that facilitated the growth of the church, which included evangelizing some of the most difficult people of the time. You see, discipleship is the predicate for evangelism, something that's not well understood today, but it's clearly, you see it in both Acts 20 or Acts 19 and again in Acts chapter 6. So now in Acts 20, where we have him meeting with the elders of Ephesus, we're going to have him really explaining to us again how important this discipleship is to everything. So let me begin by just uh, pointing out that if you were Paul, and you were going to go to Jerusalem, and you know this would be the last time you would probably ever be able to see people in Asia because you were getting warnings from the Holy Spirit through prophetic voices along the way that things were not going to go well for you in Jerusalem. Nevertheless, you feel that you must go. Then you might want to stop and say goodbye to people. Now, he obviously knew a lot of people in Ephesus spending three years there, so he didn't go to Ephesus. He went to a town about 36 miles away, called for the elders to come to him. Now, you might say, what would he say to them? Now, if you look at it the way we think today, you would probably think he's going to tell them, you need to go evangelize the world because there's so many people that haven't heard about Jesus, and they need to be saved, and we need to go get that done so Christ can come back soon. That's our mindset of today. And that's how we think about evangelism and missions. Well, you will be disabused of that when you see what Paul did. He did not do the kinds of things we think he would have done based on our thinking today. And so maybe we need to adjust our thinking to understand his thinking and adopt his thinking instead of the popular paradigms of today. So hopefully that will be part of the fruit of this study is it will challenge how you think about what is really important and what is God doing because if God is doing something that we don't understand, we need to try to understand it. And God is not trying to populate heaven, as we might think. God's agenda is something different. So let's dig in and see what God's agenda might be based on what Paul had to say to these elders in Miletus. So we'll start in chapter 20, verse 17. And this first uh, section here I've called Paul's Reminder. Paul's reminder to the elders of Ephesus as to what he did when he was there. So let's just read the text, and I'll make a few comments as we go. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. Now he was about 36 miles from uh, Miletus to Ephesus. I don't know how hilly or rocky or difficult it was, but probably something like a day and a half or two days a journey to get there. So we, we don't think in terms of days of journeys. We think in terms of hours of journeys. But they didn't mind spending days going someplace for something important. This was clearly important. So they went, and this is uh, the word elder here is presbyteros, which is the common word for elder. You're going to see in this text that the elders equated with the bishop, 
And the the role of elder or bishop is the role of pastor. So you're going to see all three of these ideas coming together in this text. So when they came to him, that is the elders came to Paul, he said to them, you know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and tears during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. Now, this idea of serving is serving as a slave. You know, you can, there are different words translated to serve. You're going to see another one a little later on in the text. But this one is referring to himself as a slave, a servant of the Lord, very humbly, agonizing, with tears, meaning it was, it was painful. It was emotionally painful at times. Struggles were, were going on, particularly the plots of the Jews. He goes on to say, you know that I did not avoid. The word avoid there is the word pull back or draw back or hold back. I didn't hold back anything. I proclaimed everything to you that was profitable. And from teaching you publicly and house to house, he, he was both publicly speaking. He was speaking in personal settings as well. He was doing every methodology he could, and he was telling him everything, proclaiming everything profitable. Now, what's profitable? Is everything in the Word of God profitable? Is every doctrine profitable? Well, we're going to get some more guidance on that here in the next section, but let me just give you a clue. The answer is yes. Everything's profitable, even the hard things, and there are a lot of hard things in Scripture, like coordination and and providence and the sovereignty of God and predestination and, and the doctrine of election and, and the, the whole doctrine of the Trinity is challenging. The hypostatic union of Christ is challenging. The reality of, of evil in a fall in a world created by a holy God, that's theodicy, that's challenging. And then you see the whole thing about God's sovereignty and yet humans are responsible, that tension there, that's challenging. These are hard things or hard to understand. But these are things that Paul did not hold back from. He, he put it all out there. He declared the whole counsel of God. So I want to read again. I testify. This is the word that it, it's an intensified form of being a witness. It's present, a present middle participle. Present tense means he's continually testifying. He's solemnly affirming to both Jews and Greeks. You understand the message of the oak of the new covenant is for the Jews and Greeks. It's rooted in the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, 3, where God would bless all the nations of the world. And he did it through justification by faith through Christ. That's what Paul explains in Galatians 3. So Paul is testifying to this over and over to everyone in every place, in every setting, all the truth. Now, that's just profound, but it helps you understand why it took two years and speaking and teaching every day for two years to go through all the counsel of God. Maybe that's a good sense of how much teaching we need to be engaged in, much more than we probably are. So that's Paul's reminder. He they reminds him, all these things I've done. This I'm looking back at my experience, my time with you, and reminding you of these things. So now he wants to go into the next phase where he talks about himself as a watchman, Paul the watchman. He says, and now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit. 
Now that's uh, the perfect passive participle. Perfect means something happened in the past and the action was completed in the past, but there's continuing co results, continuing consequences. So, and it's passive meaning that Paul did not compel himself. The motivation to do this was not from him. It was from the spirit. He is compelled by the spirit. He's bound. He must do this, even though all along the way, he's getting warnings. He says, not knowing what will I will encounter there, except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns. Now, how does he warn? He obviously warns through people. He sends people with a prophetic word, a word of knowledge to tell him what's coming up. Paul, you need to know what's coming. Chains and afflictions are awaiting you. But he says, I considered my life, my soul, suke, of no value. Timnos, timnos is something valuable, important to you. I don't consider that valuable to myself. My purpose, what's really valuable, what's really important is the purpose. And the interesting, this word purpose is the word logos. So it's, it's really, it implies the purpose in the sense of God has put a word in me that I must pass out. Well, God has put a word in all of us. Revelation, he reveals things to all of us. That becomes the word he's put in us, and it's our job to fulfill you know, completing that word, passing that word on, living that word, training and teaching that word. So my purpose is to finish the teleos, which is the, the common word for complete, bring things to completion. He's to complete his work, assignment in the meta narrative. That's what he must do. So he is to finish my course and the diakonia. The diakonia is the word translated ministry in the English language. Diakonia, we know, is a Greek word that had nothing to do with church work. It had to do with obeying the commands of someone else. So we know in the Christian context, diakonia is to obey the commands of Christ. We all have our diakonia. Paul had his diakonia. He was an apostle. Most of his life was apostolic work. He certainly had a call to be a tent maker too. That was part of his diakonia. But his focus here is on his primary assignment of being that apostle who is bringing the message of what it means for Jesus to be Lord in Christ. What are the implications of that? How do we live in that a light of that reality? So he wants to complete that. That must the must of his life. And he realizes this has been given to him by the Lord Jesus and to testify to the gospel, the evangelon of God's grace. There is no other worldview exists that I'm aware of any time in history and presently that includes a doctrine of grace. Grace where God has extended favor to us. He has empowered us and we did nothing to deserve it. Every other worldview is based on humans trying to make themselves worthy of God. Only Christianity, only Christianity, not even Judaism, only Christianity has a, as a doctrine of grace. So this is the core of what Paul is carrying, is this truth about the word, the gospel, the message of God's grace. Now he goes on to his 
watchman role. If you remember in the Old Testament, the watchman was given a responsibility. And Ezekiel 3, 18 and 19, it says something very interesting. Now, I'm going to read that to you to kind of help you understand this last section here uh, in Acts. He says, um, if I say to the wicked person, you will surely die, but, but you do not warn him, you don't speak out to, to warn him about his wicked ways in order, that he, in, in order to save his life, that wicked person will die for his iniquity. This is God speaking to Ezekiel, who is the watchman, and saying that, hey, you, I'm going to speak through you to this work, this wicked person, and you warn him. Okay, if that if that wicked person basically heeds it, then he will repent. Yet I will hold you responsible for his blood, if that is, if you don't serve as a watchman. But if you warn him, if you warn him, and he does not turn from the wickedness or the wicked way, he will die for his iniquity. But you will have rescued yourself. So you have two scenarios. You've got to speak it out, okay? If you if he turns, then then that's good for him. But if he doesn't turn, he's going to die. But because you spoke it out, you've rescued him. But if you don't speak, if you don't speak to warn him, then what happens is the blood is on you. So Paul is compelled by this Old Testament truth about the importance of being faithful to the word you've been given. So that's the idea here that he's using out of Ezekiel. So now he says, I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching or proclaiming this good news of the kingdom. Remember, the kingdom is the overarching theme of the whole book. The idea of the kingdom is found in numerous places in Scripture, numerous places here in, in the book of Acts. For example, Acts 1, verse 3, Acts 8, verse 12, Acts 14, verse 22, Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 20, 25, which is our text today, and Acts 28, 30, 23 through 31. When Jesus was in his time between his resurrection and ascension, his focus was on one thing, the kingdom. So we have to get really clear. When he's, the kingdom is the highest level of concept. Everything else is a sub a sub a subcategory of the kingdom in some way. So he's saying, I proclaim to you the kingdom. And, and furthermore, you're never going to see me again. This is it. Therefore, I declare. In other words, I'm speaking out as a witness. This is the word martyromai, which is the witness. I'm, I'm declaring to you this day, I'm innocent of your blood. Remember, that's the Ezekiel 3 idea. I'm interested in your blood because I have discharged my responsibility as a watchman. I have given you the warning because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan or counsel of God. You see, we give back, remember we talked about he declared everything was profitable. Everything is profitable is the whole counsel of God. Everything, every concept, every doctrine, even the hard doctrines, everything is valuable. Paul declared it all, held back nothing. Now, most of us uh, probably are in settings, local church settings, where there are certain things that will not be discussed. And you may have been in settings for 30 years and never heard certain things discussed because we don't have this concept generally in our heads. We are always trying to persuade people to make a decision for Christ so we don't speak about the things that are difficult, that are hard. 
We don't talk about the tension between sovereignty and human responsibility. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about theodicy, the problem with sin in a fallen world. How could that happen? We don't really talk in depth about the Trinity or about election or, or about the foreknowledge of God or the predestination of God. The, these things we don't talk a lot about. We, we tend to avoid these things. But Paul didn't. Paul spoke it all out. He was in your face. So he's basically setting up now for a directive. He wants to give them a command and direct them, but he had to set this up by reminding them of what he did and reminding him of how he's functioned as a watchman. This is more reminder here. And so now we go on to the next section, which is verses 28 through 35. And there are three basic movements here. First, Paul gives them a command. In fact, he gives them two commands. You might argue that the two commands are, are very similar. They are, but uh, they are two commands. And then he gives a commendation to them, like a commissioning, and then he provides a defense. So first, the first command is, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the ecclesia of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now that was one verse, but so much in that. First of all, you see, the church offices, the only positions in a local church that are granted authority biblically are that of an elder or an overseer. And you can see he uses the terms interchangeably. He says he's obviously talking to them as elders because that's he summoned the elders. We saw that in verse 17. And so now he calls them here, you as overseers, that's episkopos, which we call translate bishop. So the concept of a bishop and an elder appears to be synonymous. Now, I know the Anglican world doesn't agree with that, but they I don't know how they deal with this text. This text seems to make them synonymous. And then we have the role or the function of pastor, which is the role of a shepherd. You see, the elder or bishop, they have authority, and part of their function, how they carry out that authority, is they shepherd. And so they have a command to guard first, first, first themselves and then all of the ecclesia. He uses the imagery of a flock and a shepherd here to convey what he's trying to convey. Our role is to protect the guard, the people of God. And then he points out, these are people which he's purchased. I, I love the, this word he used here for purchase. Purchase means to set aside for oneself to preserve for oneself, to acquire for oneself. Jesus has done that with his own blood. He's purchased his people. He's purchased them from the fallen state and he's redeemed them out to be his people. So that's the imagery here. He goes on to say, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. So now he's talking about the threat. Here's the threat and this is why you need to be on guard. These savage wolves are coming. First, they're going to come in from among you, not sparing the flock. And then he says men. Now, the word men here is a word that can generically, can be used generically, can refer to men or women. It's translated men, but it can be women as well. So men or women will rise up even from your own number. 
that word own number means is from yourself. That's really a, probably a better way to translate that and distort the truth. You see, the way you will recognize the wolves is they will distort the truth to lure the disciples to follow them. So that's the, that's the mark of a wolf. Who is distorting truth, taking some truth and, and some way twisting it to fit their agenda to try to lure, which is to tear away people from the body of Christ. Therefore, now he gives a second command. He said, be on the alert. So he said, be on guard in verse 28. And now in verse 31, he says, be alert. That's present active imperative, present tense, continuous action, active voice. We are the ones to be alert. That is, we leaders. Imperative is its command. This is a command of Jesus here. You know, when you're told in Matthew 28, verse 20, to teach people to obey the commands of Christ, this is a command of Christ. We should be teaching this to our leaders that this is the way you function. And he goes on to say, remembering that day and night for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. So you see, in his whole time in Ephesus, he's issued warnings. It's not been a feel-good message. Come to Jesus and he'll take care of your problems. There's all these warnings that he's given. He's given the whole counsel of God. We tend today to give a little bit of the counsel of God. Paul withheld none of it. Now, verse 32, when he gives us condemnation, uh, commendation here, rather, not condemnation, commendation. And now I commit to you uh, to God and to the word of his grace. You see, that's that, again, that distinctive of Christianity, the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. You see, the point of Christianity is not just a ticket to heaven. It is to come into a relationship with Christ where you are now a son of God, a daughter of God, and you have the Holy Spirit in you, and now you're growing and maturing in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you're not growing and maturing, there's no life in you. If there's no life in you, you have not been born again. So we have to know this is a key marker of who is really a Christian is growth and maturity in Christ. If you see somebody who is stuck, who's stymied, there's no growth, there's no assurance in scripture that they really know the Lord. So we should pray that they would come to know the Lord. And when they, we see life happening, we seek to serve what God is doing in them, how he's wanting them to grow. We may have an assignment to disciple them. Okay, and he goes on to say, and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. This is the future tense of salvation. You see, the future tense of salvation is glorification where we will go into the presence of the Lord. Many times today, we present the message of Christ as a truncated message. It's accept Christ and you will have that future inheritance with no thought about what happens in between. No, that's not Christianity. Christianity is you accept Christ, you have a work assignment in this existence, and when you complete that work assignment, which included growing up in Christ, you will be transitioned into the presence of Christ and you receive the fullness of your inheritance. That's Christianity. Paul taught that. We don't generally teach that today. We teach a, a view of Christianity that we can argue is really not very biblical. Uh, we don't teach the whole counsel of God. I've been trying to talk to some church leaders about that recently, and it's making them very uncomfortable because they're thinking they're doing this great job. I said, you're not doing what Paul did. Paul taught a much more robust understanding of truth than we do today. 
finally he gives his defense because Paul, one of the things that happened to him, wherever he went, and Ephesus was no exception, was as soon as he left, his opponents came in. And they began to accuse him of being a false teacher, having ill motives, and tried to discredit him any way they could. And one of the ways they tried to discredit him is saying he did it for money. So look at what he says in verse 33. He says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Back in those days, clothing were very valuable. Today, clothings are readily available. We don't think of those as valuables, but they're valuables back then. So I haven't coveted anything valuable. You yourself know that I worked. Now, this is a different word for work. It's not the typical word ergot. It's actually the work of being a rower on a boat. Now, that's that's a very interesting imagery because we have no other reference anywhere to Paul being a rower on a boat. As far as we know, he was a tent maker. Uh, that was his vocational calling. He says, but he's using this imagery to talk about how he labored at it because obviously a rower in a boat is just rowing all day long. Hard, hard work. I think that's what he's trying to convey to us. You yourself know that I worked hard with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me, which would be his disciples. So he was not only supporting himself, he was supporting others. He was probably an entrepreneur. He was probably a business owner. He had set up shop there in Ephesus and was conducting business, and he was he was the head. He may have been doing a lot of the work. His disciples may or may not have been helping, but he was clearly the one carrying the load. Now, we know from 1 Corinthians 9 that he didn't have to do this. It wasn't necessary. He, he had every right to be paid for his work in sharing the truth about Christ. The labor is worthy of his hire. He makes that point very clear in 1 Corinthians 9. But you hear he points out that this, in this case, it was necessary I do it this way. He says, verse 35, in every way I've shown you that it's necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said it is more blessed to give than received. You see, Paul was recognizing that in certain circumstances, being paid for what you do is not the priority. I'm certainly entitled to it, you know, it's certainly biblical that you do that, but there's some people that just don't have the maturity to know how to use resources properly. So for the sake of them, I'm going to not require of them what I am due. I'm going to go ahead and take care of it myself. So he labored this way voluntarily to serve them, showing sacrificial love by doing this. Certainly, he's not telling us this is the way it's done. He's showing us how to be sacrificial and extending love to someone, even though you're entitled to be paid for what you do. So finally, he comes to his departure. So verses 36 through 38, Paul's departure and farewell. After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. And there were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him and grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. You see, this was sad because he knew these men well. He labored with them for, for three years. They had become close, and now he just delivered a very, very challenging final message. He's not talking about going to the world and preaching the gospel to the unsaved world. He's talking about 
protecting the flock and purifying the flock. This is what discipleship is all about. The predicate must be discipleship first. Once the initial proclamation of the message of Christ was accomplished in the first century, the attention needs to turn now to the, the, the disciples and to beginning to work through the model of evangelism through discipleship, which he modeled for us in Acts 19. That's the model I think that Paul would say is the correct model for how we disciple. We've got all kinds of models, excuse me, evangelize. We have all kinds of models for evangelism today. I've never seen the Pauline model in any of them that I've ever read. They're always just things like friendship evangelism, you know, marketplace evangelism, these kinds of things, instead of discipleship first and then letting disciples who become so impregnated with Christ, so Christian in how they live, let them go and infect the culture. And that's apparently what happened in Ephesus in Acts 19, verses 9 and 10. Well, let me just give you uh, some theological thoughts and then an application real quickly. Uh, the summary of the kingdom of God in some sense is contained in this text because we know the kingdom of God is the overarching theme of the book of Acts. Everything relates to the kingdom. So when we start looking at the nuances of what Paul covered, they all relate to the kingdom. So what did Paul cover? Well, obviously he covered the kingdom. He specifically mentioned the kingdom here. He also covered the meta narrative, which is the backdrop of history. Everything is contextualized in the meta narrative. Your life is contextualized in the meta narrative. The more you can see it in the meta narrative, which requires metaphysical awareness, the more you're likely to see what God's really called you to do. Furthermore, the whole counsel of God is the topic, the purview of what we should be teaching disciples. We should hold nothing back because everything is profitable. One of the foundational ideas is repentance toward God, and with that, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Another foundational idea is the grace of God. The, one of the uniquenesses of Christianity is the grace. There's, as I mentioned before, there's no other worldview that offers grace as a fundamental doctrine of their worldview. Only Christianity does. There's also a purpose. Paul functioned out of a profound sense of purpose. We each have a purpose, a role to play in the meta narrative, which is part of the kingdom of God. We have to have our priorities straight in the ecclesia. Today, our, uh, the priorities of most in the ecclesia are evangelism. That was not Paul's priority. Paul certainly evangelized, but Paul's priority was discipleship first. What we do today is we, we do evangelism without discipleship. That's not Pauline. Pauline. Pauline doctrine is you do evangelism through discipleship. Now, that's very hard. That is so counterculture. It's so counter to everything we've seen and known of Christianity because largely the last 300 years of Christianity have been infected with some bad thinking about evangelism, and we're living in light of that, and we need to look at Scripture and let Scripture inform us as to how to think about evangelism. So I think if you do that, you'll be persuaded pretty quickly that Paul had it right. Evangelism, the best way to do it is going to be through discipleship. And then we see the role of the watchman. 
more than ever, when you realize that we're in the war between two seeds, the meta narrative is a massive battle between the forces of good and evil. You've got to have watchmen, particularly watchmen over the body of Christ, who are looking out for the enemy and how the enemy's going to come. And the watchman's got to look not only out, but within. You know, usually you think a watchman looking from without, but no, we have to look within because most likely the spirit of Antichrist is going to come in as an angel of light some way within, within the leaders and within the sheep or the community itself. So we've got to play that role of the watchman and we need to be wise and recognize what's going on, see the signs of the time and know what the people of God should do. Another key aspect of the kingdom of God is the atonement, understanding the atoning work of Christ. Historically, there have been three views, basically three views of the atonement. The early view of the church was a, a ransom theory, and some thought it was ransoming um, humans from Satan. That didn't really settle too well with most of the church fathers. Eventually, by the 11th century, they developed the satisfaction theory. Anselm was given credit for this. And the reformers really reinforced the satisfaction theory. And so that's really, I think, the best theory today. But along the way, when the Enlightenment came and the, the, uh, the <clears throat> French Enlightenment with the Great Awakening, they came together. Uh, a new theory came along. It's called the moral influence theory that really debases uh, depravity. In other words, we don't understand depravity. We think mankind has got more potency than he has in his fallen state. So we think mankind can can choose to self-save. So the moral influence theory, which is popular today, is basically a denial of grace. It's a works-based approach to salvation. So the only sound atonement, I think, theory of atonement is the satisfaction theory, which is, I think, what he's referring to here when he talks about Jesus acquired, he bought, he purchased the ecclesia with his own blood. And finally, the work of building the ecclesia. Uh, the, the work will be um, contested. We have to know that we're going to have resistance from the forces of evil on all sides and we have to be vigilant about looking out protecting the the body of christ and then purifying the people of god in the process as well all right let me give you a word of application what is god doing so i've kind of mentioned some of these things but ever wonder what god is doing over the course of history if you look at the popular view of evangelism and missions over the past 300 years, you might conclude that God is waiting for the Christians to share the gospel with everyone, which will usher in the return of Christ. But is this really what God is doing? Is he really waiting for the Christians to evangelize the world? Could Paul's message to the Ephesian elders provide some clues as to what God is really doing? Well, let's just consider this for a moment. After Paul was intercepted by Jesus, he devoted himself to doing what the Father directed him to do. Largely apostolic work, but also he was a tent maker. His custom was to travel as he was led by the Spirit, and wherever he stopped, he would go to the synagogues, to the biblically literate people to testify that Jesus is Lord in Christ, and that unlocked now the understanding of the Old Testament in whole new ways. They could see the revelation that we now know to be New Testament truth in the Old Testament by this truth that Jesus is Lord in Christ. And so, so much of the New Testament is the apostles unpacking that truth by studying the Old Testament in light of that truth. For those who believe this message, he taught them 
That is, when they received this message that Jesus was Lord in Christ and began to understand the Old Testament accordingly, Paul taught these people. Perhaps the clearest example was his three-year visit to Ephesus on his third apostolic journey. And here he conducted a daily discipleship training for two years. Now, this is the only place we know of in Scripture where he did something like this. Perhaps this was a great learning experience for Paul himself. Perhaps he, you know, it looks like he was forced into this. And when he did it, I think he may have been surprised at the fruit. So he may have been learning as he went along as well. Because the fruit was disciples who were so Christianized that when they got through, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, that's evangelism for people to hear the word of the Lord. And he's talking about all of Asia. Wait a minute. This was a discipleship initiative in Ephesus, one city. But now it's impacted all of Asia. So you see, wow, evangelism of Asia was accomplished through discipleship. That's a novel idea. Most people don't think about that. After three years, Paul left Ephesus. He traveled to Macedonia and Greece. And, and before beginning a return trip to Jerusalem, on his way, he stopped at Miletus and summoned the Ephesian elders. Now, why did he do that? This occurred because, you know, he just spent three years with them just a few months before. I mean, you'd think he said everything he needed to say, but for some reason he felt pressed to have one final conversation with them. We don't know how long they were together. This may have been a day or so. Maybe it's only a day. But he wanted to meet them one final time, and he wanted to convey something to them. Did he want to send them on a mission to evangelize the world? No. That was not his intention. His intention was to point out to them a command, the risk that are coming to the body of Christ and the importance of proclaiming the whole counsel of God to build up the body of Christ and to protect the body of Christ from the wolves. You could say to protect and purify. So the focus on the protection and purity of the disciples was not only Pauline, but also a pattern of both the early church, that is the first 500 years of the church, and the early reformers, that is the first 250 years after the 16th century Reformation. Both of these periods of time, you saw an understanding of, of the discipleship as the primary objective more than evangelism. However, since the Great Awakening, which is the past 300 years, a major focus of Christianity has been evangelism with little concern about the protection and purity of disciples. Consequently, the fruit of the modern evangelistic effort has been, as noted by one of the major leading missionologists, it's been much less than expected. When I asked this mission leader, which I did have a personal conversation with him, why the fruit of the massive mission effort of the past three centuries was so anemic, his explanation was very simple. He said, I don't think we understand of it, discipleship. Well, if the Apostle Paul was to provide his perspective, if he were in that conversation with me and the missionologist, I think he might tell us something. He might say that, that we don't understand evangelism through discipleship. That's our big problem. In other words, the, pre the predicate for fruitful evangelism is disciples who live the faith and are therefore the light of Jesus to the world. Another way to express this truth is the quality of disciples precedes quantity of disciples. Quality precedes quantity. In a megachurch world, we're all about quantity. We sacrifice quality for quantity. We have to reverse that and, and sacrifice quantity to build quality. That's what Paul did. 
The way forward is to return to the Pauline method of evangelism through discipleship. This means that the protection and purity of disciples is the predicate for fruitful evangelism. This is why God, why Paul called the Ephesian elders to meet, meet him at Miletus. Instead of being concerned about world evangelism, the quantity, as we are today, Paul was concerned about the quality, the protection and purity of the disciples. Evangelism through discipleship was also seen in Acts 6, 1 through 7, when the C4 principle was used to bring order out of chaos in the ecclesia, the first ecclesia. This led to accelerated growth and conversion of some of the most difficult people, the Jewish priest. If we embrace evangelism through discipleship as our methodology, perhaps we would see the fruit of Acts 6 and the fruit of Paul at Acts 19 in Ephesus. Building quality disciples means helping them become grounded in the faith. It means protecting them. It means guarding them, guiding them, and directing them, and getting them grounded in the faith. When they get impregnated with Christ and get become contagious for Christ, this will lead them to become more effective as evangelists. And perhaps this is the way God would is, is actually working today, and we just don't realize it. The question is, will we join him in evangelism through discipleship, or we will, con- will we continue the flawed model of evangelism without discipleship. As you look around your Christian community and you see people who seem to be dead, lukewarm, not growing at all, showing no signs of life, you have to ask yourself, what's really going on? Well, I would submit to you, these are people that probably have been abandoned by the leadership. They have been abandoned for the sake of evangelism. And we need to repent of that and go back and sow seeds where we see life, where we see the Spirit of God working, sow seeds to help facilitate the growth and maturity of these disciples. Pour into them, and it may take a long time, but we keep pouring into them, keep pouring into them, keep pouring into them until we see that life showing up in them, transformation, light in their eyes. You'll see a hunger for the Word. You'll see a desire to align their lives with the will and ways of God. You'll see a desire to learn what they have C4 to do and want to fulfill the purpose of God for life. Then you're seeing life. You're seeing real disciples. And from those disciples, there'll be light to the world. And from that light, we will see people drawn to Christ. Discipleship precedes evangelism. Discipleship is the predicate for good evangelism. May we have grace to see it. And may we be able to walk that out well for the glory of God in Jesus' name. Amen.